Thanks again so much for being here and being a part of these services. Uh, you know, the Lord made it very clear in His Word, those who honor me, who remembers what He said? I will honor. And uh, when you give your time the way you are tonight, this is just simply saying, Lord, I honor you. You're worthy of this time. You're worthy of this attention. And uh, I say to you, watch out. Because it'd be one thing for Joel or me or anybody else to, to honor you, maybe pull you up here and say, what a good, good, great job you've done. What a wonderful person you are. And we can do a lot of things to honor you. But when Jesus honors you, you feel it. You feel it from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. And that's what I'm in agreement with you and with your pastors for you and your life tonight, that you would sense the honor of God and his response to the time that you are investing in him and in his word tonight. He honors you and you feel it in your physical body. He honors you, you see it in your finances. He honors you and you see it played out in your family, your marriage, your, with your children and on the job. When God honors you, you know it, you feel it, you see it, and the people around you see it. And uh, don't be surprised. We may even see some of this in Scripture tonight. But don't be surprised if people who don't even claim that there is a God can see him on you. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? When he got sold into slavery and he ended up working for a man in Egypt, Potiphar. And this is not a God-fearing man. But the Scripture said he saw that the Lord was with him. That's the honor of God. So that's what we can be in agreement for tonight. And uh, again, let me just say one more time, what an honor, what a privilege it is to be here and to be a part of this awesome church. It's been amazing over the last several years to come and watch the growth, the growth, the growth, and to see you guys stepping in to the next part, the next phase, the next step of the plan of God. It's awesome. And uh, I want to let you all know how privileged and blessed you are to have pastors that are genuinely hungry for the Lord. Joel is without a doubt in him. Joel is without a doubt one of the hungriest men I know. And, and I, I mean that. I mean that in all sincerity. He's hungry for the Lord. He's hungry for the things of God. And the two of you guys just embody such a passion for the things of the Word. And, and just life. Life in general. Just exuberance and joy. Uh, you're not boring people. And we appreciate that. Thank you. God is so good. Would you pray with me tonight? We can get into the Word together. Father, we love you. We worship you. We come before you tonight, we come before your word, again, with open eyes, open ears, and an open heart. We have eyes wide open to see Jesus, to see him more clearly than we've ever seen him before. We put our eyes on him, we take our eyes off each other, we take our eyes off of the, the natural elements of this world, and we fix our eyes on Jesus. And by the help of your Holy Spirit tonight, we will see him. We will hear his voice, the voice of our good shepherd, who calls us by our name. Thank you, Jesus, for having this intimacy, this relationship with us, that you would call us by our name and lead us out, out of where we are and into the next part, the next step, the next phase of your plan and assignment for our lives, our families, and our ministries. And we thank you tonight, Father, that you've given to us hearts that have the capacity to understand who we are in you and who the Lord Jesus is in us. We know that you are faithful to watch over your word and you will perform it in our lives. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. And this good work that you've begun in us, you are faithful to complete it. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, uh, last night we got into some things, and I know the Lord met us and helped us. We're in this time that your pastors have heard from the Lord and focused on moving life forward. And that uh, it sounds like an obvious statement, but when you really assess where people's thoughts are, where people's attention is, a lot of times it is more on the past than it is the future. And you and I both know there's nothing you can do anymore about the past. The only thing that anybody can do about the past is plead the blood of Jesus over it. That's the most effective thing you can do about whatever's behind you, is come before the Lord Jesus and say, thank you for being gracious, thank you for being merciful, thank you for being kind to my stupidity, over and over and over. Thank you for the blood that covers me, wipes away my past, now what? We move forward. We walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. Is that right? And it's not just the just living by faith, but it's we were justified by faith. And it's that same faith that we were justified by that he expects us to live by. So in other words, whatever, whatever occurred in your life that, that gave birth to the miracle of salvation, live that way. Are you following me? That's why the scripture calls it living from faith to faith. Whatever faith you were born again by, live by that. Well, what was the faith you were born again by? You believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from from the dead. You confessed with your mouth that he's Lord. You believed something and you said something. You believed it, you said it. And you experienced The greatest miracle that any human being has ever experienced. And that's the rebirth of the human spirit. And any other miracle, as wonderful as it is, doesn't begin to compare to the glory of you going from death to life on the inside. Now, how'd that happen? Here's how it happened. Your heart and your mouth got in the same place. And you came into agreement with God. Now we've talked and maybe you've heard people talk and preach along these lines before, but concerning the power of agreement, Jesus said, were any two of you on earth agree as touching this thing, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You've heard of him saying that before, right? We call that the power of agreement. I know my wife and I, Sarah, we have experienced this in our marriage in in ways that shocked us and surprised us early on just how much power there was in our agreement. And right before we got married, we had a friend of ours who's, he and his wife a little older than us have many, many kids. And he he told us, he said, you guys are going to be amazed at what happens when you just come into agreement on something and watch what God does. And we thought, okay, well, that sounds great. But we saw it over and over and over again. I'm talking about thousands of dollars coming at once answers, miracles, insight, everything you can think of. And it came as the result of us doing what Jesus said. You come into agreement. And uh, one of the things we've come to realize that it's not just she and I agreeing with each other. It's the two of us agreeing with God. That's the power of agreement. I'm coming into agreement with you. You call Jesus Lord. I call Jesus Lord. And there's power in that agreement. Enough power in it to save you. 
to save you from hell in eternity and, check this out, to save you from hell on earth. There's enough power in agreeing with God just simply about who Jesus is. Now, you need to understand, especially those of us who are married, husbands and wives, we need to understand that as much power as there is in our agreement, there is equal and opposite power in our disagreement. The power that works for you when you agree together concerning the word and whatever it is you need, that power works against you in strife and in disagreement. How many of you would agree, let's put the end of strife? Our homes ought to be a strife-free environment. Because if the love of God is the manifest presence of God, strife is the manifest presence of the devil. And I believe our homes, our relationships, our cars on Sunday morning on the way to church ought to be strife-free environments. And anytime it does show up, just call it. Just call it like you see it right then and there and don't let that thing build. And if it's your fault, say, hey, oh, oh, my fault, my bad. And listen, if it's not your fault, what do you say? Uh-oh, my fault. I'll tell you, it's better to accept the responsibility and put an end to the strife than it is to let it hang around. Before I got married, I planned nothing of this tonight, by the way. I don't just flow with the Holy Ghost. Before uh, Sarah and I got married, I read this. Uh, book written by a minister concerning marriage and so on. But he made a statement in there that stuck with me. He said, is it better to be right or righteous? Is it better to be right or righteous? In other words, is it better to, you know, stand your ground because I'm the right one about this and I'm thinking the right way? Or is it better to be righteous in the eyes of God and of in an atmosphere where love's been given place. It's better to be righteous. How do we get into any of that? Thank you, Lord. Coming into agreement with God about who Jesus is. And we're, we're talking specifically in our time together concerning the future, where things are headed. And what we established last night is that in God, something's always coming. There's something always ahead of you because He doesn't stand still and He's not too keen on you and I standing still. Again, it's the walk of faith. And how do you walk? Don't over-spiritualize this, okay? How do you walk by faith? Somebody teach me how to walk by faith. I wish I knew what that meant, walk by faith. Can I demonstrate for you how you walk by faith? I think we did this a couple of years ago. This is how you do it. You take a step. Yes, but then what? Ready? Take another step. And then repeat that over and over and over and over until you're where he's called you to be. That's the walk of faith. It's one step, then another one, then another one. But you need to understand that it's moving forward. Somebody say, something's coming. And that's the truth. Something is always coming. Um, this came up in my heart tonight. I, I've got two or three different things rolling around in there, so... Let's let the Lord do His work. In Matthew chapter 19, in verse 26, and let me just tell you what I'm believing God to happen in you tonight. I'm believing that you are going to get answers to questions, that you are going to get a glimpse of the future, of who He's called you to be, 
and what he's called you to do. And again, in that order. It's not what he's called you to do, then who he's called you to be. No, it's first the calling to be, and out of that comes the calling to do. I'm believing that's going to happen tonight. I believe you're going to walk out of this place tonight, and you are going to see more clearly than you ever have before that God's plan is good, God is faithful to his word, and he will perform in you what he said he'd do. And we prayed it before we got into the word tonight that the good work he began in you, he's faithful to finish it. The author and the finisher of your faith. So, are you in agreement with me tonight? Is that going to happen? Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them, talking about the disciples, and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God, say it with me, all things are possible. He said, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now this came out of a question that Peter asked him. He said, who can be saved? Now last night we spent some time reading Mark chapter 10, looking at who the Bible calls the rich young ruler. Those of you who are here, you remember this. This is somebody that came running up to Jesus with an earnest, sincere question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He and Jesus had a conversation about the commandments The guy said, yeah, I've done all that. Jesus looked at him. He loved him. He said, one thing you lack, go sell what you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come take up your cross, follow me. But he went away sad at this word because he had great possessions. And as soon as he walked away, Jesus, you can see it here in Matthew 19, began talking to the disciples about how difficult it is to get a rich man into the kingdom of God. And they started asking him questions about it. And he said, it's, it's nearly impossible to get somebody who trusts in riches to enter into the things of God. To put it in our vernacular, Jesus would have said, man, I can't get, it's difficult. I won't say I can't. He said, it's difficult. And with men, it's impossible to get somebody who on the outside has apparently every need met. It's hard to get that person to put trust in something other than themselves and their own ability to meet their own need. So this is how hard it is. And Peter responded to that and said, well, who then can be saved? It's an interesting question because Jesus is talking about a wealthy person. And Peter said, well, who can be saved? And this is the context that Jesus responded in and said, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That, that statement that we're so fond of and we put in picture frames and up in our houses and that, all that's wonderful. But this is the context that came out of Peter asking, who can be saved? Because Jesus told them that it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than it is to get a rich man into the kingdom of God. And... Jesus answered and said, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The word impossible literally means, if you look it up, it just literally means it can't be done. And you knew that. You know that, right? Impossible. Can't be done. It also means weakness. In other words, No matter how strong you are in any area of your life, when you step up to an impossibility, that thing, whatever it is, is stronger than you. 
So in comparison to it, you're weak. Now, you could be incredibly strong physically, but you find out the limits to physical strength. And you can find out how limited physical strength is in a hurry just by trying to move something, lift something, push something that's beyond your physical capability. You might have great mental strength, but you can come to the end of that quickly. You could be very strong financially, but anybody who is will tell you, even as strong as you are or want to be, you can come to the end of financial strength quickly and step up to an impossibility. And all that impossibility represents is its strength versus your weakness, inability, an inability to do something about it, an inability to change it, an inability to, like we said, lift it, push it, pull it, whatever it is, it's stronger than you. Do you see that? And again, the context of this was Peter saying, who can be saved? And that's why Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. You don't have the physical, mental, financial, or any other kind of strength that it takes to save yourself. Nobody is that strong. No man ever had enough strength to save himself. Nobody. And that's why I said, with men... It can't be done. But he didn't leave it with that, did he? He said, but with God, with God, all things are possible. So if impossible means it can't be done, take a stab at what possible means. It can be done. It can be done. You couldn't save yourself too weak. But with God and in his strength, when he strengthened you with his strength, you're born again. With God, it was possible. Here's the reason I bring this up to you. When you're taking steps towards the future, towards the assignment, the calling, you need to be able to point at whatever it is, and there needs to be some level of impossibility in it. If there's no impossibility in what you're doing or where you're headed, you really need to stop and ask yourself, am I hearing from God? Because God, I believe, never calls us into anything that we are strong enough on our own to do, to accomplish, to lift, pull, push, whatever. His assignment always requires Him. Oh, come on. Are you hearing me tonight? Always. Why? Because all the glory has got to go back to him. And you need to ask yourself, in moving life forward, where I'm headed, is there, an imp- is there a, 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 a level of impossibility in this? Is there a facet of this vision, of this goal that I'm pressing towards, that can only be done through the existence and strength of God Almighty. That's what our lives are supposed to be. A testimony, number one, to the existence of God. Do you realize that's what your life is supposed to be? That's what makes you a witness. We, we use that phrase, let's go witnessing. What's that mean? That means to tell somebody about Jesus, right? He loves you, died for you, rose again for you. Can I pray with you? That's witnessing. Okay, that's good. But what's a witness in a court of law? 
Somebody who was there. Somebody who saw with their own eyes, heard with their own ears. As a matter of fact, in that context, if you didn't see and if you didn't hear, you're not a witness. And you have no business on that stand. And if you are on that stand without having seen, without having heard, you're a liar. What makes you a witness is firsthand eyewitness testimony. Oh, come on. I said testimony. Right? And this is what God is in need of. Because in the hearts, the minds, and lives of people all over the world, he's on trial. He's been accused of murder. He's been accused of theft. He's been accused of destruction and violence. And he needs somebody to take the stand on his behalf and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. This one you're accusing of murder, I know him. He didn't do it. This one you're accusing of theft and destruction and violence, I know him. He didn't do it. I'm an eyewitness. I am a character witness. I'm here to testify of his goodness, of his faithfulness. Your life is supposed to be a demonstration and proof there is a God. There is a God. But not just that there is a God, but that he's good. That he, he is love. He is full of kindness and compassion. That, that his seed that, that Hebrew word for loving kindness and tender mercy. That is who he is at his essence and at his core. And my life and yours is supposed to be proof of that. Yes. Evidence, if you will, yes. in the court of law. So our lives and whatever it is we set our hands to do in the calling, the assignment, whatever word you want to put around it, there needs to be a level of impossibility to it so that it proves the existence of God. Basically, so somebody could look at you and say, how, what, how did, what in the, huh? So somebody just has to look at you and go, I know you and there's no way you did that. And you can go, yeah, I know. But with God, with God, it can be done. In um, the Wiest translation of this, it really kind of helps unpack what Jesus meant when he said, with men and with God. With men, in the Wiest it says, in the presence of men, as men look at it. That's what it means to be with them. To be in the presence of men and see it as they see it. And we know that, right? When you say, no, I'm with you on this. If there's an argument taking place between two people and you're the third and deciding voice, you have to decide who you're with. Well, I really got to go with Joel on this. Or if you're wise, I really got to go with Jamie on this one. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with, what are you saying? I see it the way you see it. And I say about it what you say about it. That's what it is to be with somebody. And to see it or to be with God is to be in the presence of God, to see it as God sees it. And this is what takes something out of the realm of it can't be done and puts it squarely in the realm of it can be done. It's not so much the, the physical, natural logistics and the circumstances changing. And you need to watch how you pray about things that look impossible, <laughs> feel impossible, Watch that you don't just start addressing them in prayer and saying, God, change this. God, change this. God, change this. 
What may need to happen is a change in the way you see it. Not so much a change in the natural elements of it, but a change in the way you see it. What he's saying is, come up here. Come here. Get with me on this, and I'll show it to you the way I see it. And when you see it the way he sees it, it doesn't look impossible anymore. You see this played out in, in, in various places through the Scripture. We won't take time to talk about all that. But to be with men means to be in the presence of men, see it as they see it. To be with God means to be in the presence of God, see it as he sees it. And the bottom line is, people, we know who you've been with. We can tell. Your family can tell. Your friends can tell. Your church we can tell who you've been in the presence of. It's on the countenance of your face. It's in the words coming out of your mouth. Are you talking impossibility or are you talking it can be done? And if faith is what's coming up out of your heart and that's what's, faith is what's coming out of your mouth, we know this about you. You've been in the presence of God and you've taken time to see it the way he sees it. So when you're seeking the Lord about what it is he's called you to do, look for this element of impossibility. Lord, I don't want to just do something that I can reach into my own pocket or my own bank account and meet the need of. Come on, take me out and beyond that. I don't want to just be a part of something that I have the mental capacity to do or the physical strength to do. Come on, take me out there. Get me neck deep in something that requires and demands you being with me in it. And when you are willing to step out there like that in faith, you're doing a whole lot more than just walking in the plan of God for your life. Now you are proving the existence of God and proving the character of God as well. So we talked last night about being ready for what comes next. If you remember, we asked this question, so what's next? That's really something you need to be asking pretty consistently in your life. God, what's next? What's next? And not careful that you don't ask it out of this place of discontented, you know what I mean, where you're frustrated, but just in a place of faith. I know something's coming. What's next, Lord? Now, here's what's interesting about us asking that question. I can't answer that for you. Nor can you answer it for me or us answer it for any one of anybody else in this room. That's something you have to hear from the Lord on. Because what's next for you is not what's next for me. We all have individual assignments and callings. But what we can do is find out what it takes to be ready for what's next. Because that applies to all of us. No matter what it is, in what field, and like we said last night, no matter what open door you're standing in front of, you want to make sure you're ready to take that step over the threshold the moment God opens that door. So we asked and answered this question, what's it take to be ready for what's next? Tonight I want to talk about being equipped for what comes next. Because once you're ready for it, then you're, gonna, you're going to realize it takes certain tools. You need tools in your belt and even weapons in your arsenal for what God's called you to do next. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 4. And if you want to, you can find Acts chapter 10 as well. Luke 4 and Acts 10. Somebody say, I'm with him. 
<laughs> that changes things, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever used that to get in somewhere where not everybody could get in? I mean, imagine it. Imagine you're trying to get into this place that was ultra-exclusive, and your name's not on the list. And uh, that big dude at the door that's letting some in but keeping most out, he looks at you and says name, and you give him your name, and he scans, and you're nowhere to be found. And you say, there must be some mistake, and you tell him again, and still you're not there. And just as he's turning you away, the guy who paid for this whole event is hosting this whole thing, put the whole thing on, and oh, also your very best friend comes pulling up and he steps out. And just as you're turning around to walk away from that door, you see him, you go, wait, 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 wait. I'm with him. I'm with him. Well, what's that do? It gets you in. That's access. That's access into what most people are kept on the outside of. And the only name on that list Spiritually speaking, is the name of Jesus. And what's inside, and most people are on the outside looking in, what's in there is salvation, what's in there is life and health and peace and abundance and joy and every good thing promised to you in the Word of God. Most people are just on the outside looking in. How do you get access to it? I'm with Him. I'm with Him. Now that's cool, right? How much cooler is it when He steps out in front of you and it says, it's okay. He's with me. He's with me. <laughs> You're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, this is, there's, there's power in this. You get access into these things based on who you're with. And whatever it is he's called you into, it's either going to stay in the realm of impossible or it's going to be moved in the realm of it can be done based on who you're with. I told you Luke 4. I think it would be better if we started in Acts 10, then looked at Luke 4. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching. And in verse 38, he says, How God anointed, somebody say anointed. anointed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? For God was with him. With him. Look at the scripture again. God anointed Jesus. But notice he didn't just anoint Jesus. He anointed Jesus of Nazareth. There are no wasted words in this Bible, ladies and gentlemen. No wasted detail. What does of Nazareth have to do with anything? He's a man. He's a man from down the road. But he's not just a man. He's a man anointed. Now, the kind of good he did and the healing that he did, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, healing somebody, delivering somebody from demonic influence with men is impossible. It can't be done. But with God... It can be. Jesus of Nazareth became Jesus Christ. You know what Christ means, right? The anointed one. His anointing. Jesus was and is a man anointed by God. 
And not only was he a man anointed by God, but he was dependent upon that anointing to do the things that God had assigned him and called him to do. Jesus was dependent upon that anointing. And notice what he was anointed with, the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Luke chapter 4, you see, we mentioned this last night, but Jesus is standing in the synagogue in Nazareth. That's what verse 16 says. He came to Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth is in Nazareth. What's that mean? He's home. He knows these people. These people know him. And he's standing in that synagogue. Verse 16, it says he, was, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As his custom was, he went and stood in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He said, the Spirit of the Lord's on me. Why? Because he has anointed me. Now, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but verse 27, you've heard it before, says, in that day, his burden shall be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from off your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing. That's what the anointing is. That's what the anointing does. It is the burden-removing, say it with me, burden-removing, yoke-destroying power of God. Is Kenneth Copeland your grandpa too? It sounds a lot like it. Man, I heard this growing up. The anointing. The anointing. The anointing was a concept that was not unfamiliar in our house. Now, we talked about it. It was talked about in church. It was preached about. And it's probably been 20 years ago or more now that my grandfather must have spent, I don't know how many years, talking specifically about translating and meditating the word Christ every time you came to it in Scripture. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, his anointing. Jesus with the burden-removing, yoke-destroying power of God. But as familiar as this was to me growing up, just within the last year, there's been this thing that woke up on the inside of me again. I'm hungry to know more about it. What is it? Where does it come from? How do you get it? Can I have more, please? And we've got to, especially with these things that are familiar to us in a certain, to a certain degree, don't become numb to them. Get hungry again. Maybe for some of this basic, basic stuff that you've heard before. What is the anointing? It's the burden-removing, yoke-destroying power of God. This is what we need to be in expectation of and for every time we come together around the Word of God. Because a gifting, a talent, an ability, somebody's own strength can take them a good long way, but it will always stop when it comes time to actually remove a burden and destroy a yoke. That is what a gift cannot do. That is what a talent fails to do every time. Now, it's tricky because a gift can pack out a room. A talent can fill a stadium. But what it fails to do every time on its own 
is to remove a burden and destroy a yoke. And I've come to the place in my own life, in my own ministry, that I would much rather preach to 50 people under the anointing than to 50,000 on my own. Why? Because if I stood up and talked to 50,000 people, at the very most, I could maybe come up with something that made people go, oh, wow, hmm, cool. But under the anointing, burdens get lifted. Yokes get destroyed. And this is what's so cool about it. This is why Satan hates it. This is why he is terrified of it. Because he's in the burden building business. That's what he does. In the, U- in the U.S., we have the Better Business Bureau. Do you have the... Okay. Well, Satan's in the bigger burden building business. That's, that's his whole M.O. And he will work tirelessly for year after year, generation after generation to install a burden on an individual or on a family. And how frustrating it must be to be him. To work so hard for so long to put a burden on somebody's shoulders and a yoke around their neck and keep them so enslaved to something and then that person come into contact with the anointing and to have it completely lifted and destroyed in a moment. That's got to be frustrating. I'm not saying I feel bad for him, but it does have to be frustrating. Because Jesus is in the burden-removing, yoke-destroying business. That's what the anointing's on him to do. So when he said, the Spirit of the Lord's on me because he's anointed me, to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. Well, that ought to tell you right there that poverty's not a blessing. Not one in disguise or otherwise. Poverty is a burden. It's a yoke. And bless God, Jesus was and is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. A broken heart is a burden and a yoke. And Jesus was and is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To be, to be prison, prisoner to something. To be held captive to anything. That's a burden. That's a yoke. And Jesus is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. That's what the anointing does. He's anointed to preach recovery of sight to the blind. Because blindness is a burden and a yoke. And Jesus is anointed to lift it and destroy it. Jesus is anointed. Now, people are quick to agree with you. Oh, Jesus is anointed. He's the Christ. But in 1 John, turn over there with me quickly. Still got a lot to cover here. We may have to take a bathroom break. Y'all are laughing. I saw my granddad do it once in the service. The man talked for three hours took a bathroom break, gave everybody a moment. They said, y'all come back and talk another three hours. I think when you're 82 years old, you can do that stuff. In 1 John, chapter 2, we're all quick to agree that Jesus is anointed. But check this out. In 1 John 2, 20, It says, you have an anointing. Somebody said, I do? Yeah, you do. (laughs) Me? Yeah, you. (laughs) You have an anointing. 
It says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. So the anointing that you've got is some of the anointing that he's got. The anointed one gave you some of his anointing. That's awesome. He says in verse 21, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the anointed one? He is antichrist. He is anti-anointing. Who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Didn't I tell you that there was great power in you just simply agreeing with God about who Jesus is? You want to know how to stay on God's side always and forever? Just agree with Him. That's how people stay on your side. That's how people stay in your good graces. They say, you're right. Well, this is how you stay on God's good side. Agree with Him. And specifically about the identity of Jesus. Verse 24, He said, Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing. Somebody say the anointing. The anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Verse 28, now little children, abide in him. The New Living Translation says, remain in fellowship with Christ. Translate that. Remain in fellowship with the anointing. The anointing is the equipment for what comes next. The anointing is the tool in the belt. It's the weapon in the arsenal. It's what takes your calling, your vision, your assignment out of the realm of it can't be done and puts it into the realm of all things are possible. Because didn't we read what Acts 10 said? God anointed Jesus. He went about doing good healing for God was with him. So to say that Jesus was anointed was to say God's with him. Well, to say that you're anointed is to say God is with you. God is with you. And he says, abide in fellowship, remain in fellowship with that anointing. That when he appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. The anointing is your source for confidence. The anointing is your source and your ability to live free from shame. Confidence. And it's not confidence in yourself. It's not confidence in your own strength your own experience, your own education. It's confidence in the anointing. And people sometimes get confused between confidence and arrogance. Let me give you a mathematical equation to help you identify arrogance. 
Arrogance is confidence minus the awareness of Jesus. It's confidence minus the awareness of the anointing. That's what arrogance is. In other words, you think it's you that's doing all this good stuff. That's arrogance. But confidence and confidence in the anointing is proof that my own strength ran out a long time ago. I've tapped into something that's way stronger than me. And this thing, whatever it is, I can't answer that, but only God can, is made possible by you getting with him and him with you. Let me show you this played out in one of the most uh, clear ways I've seen in all of Scripture. Go to the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 9. You remember that Israel wanted a king, like real bad. And God didn't want to do it, but they kept begging him for it. And so he said, finally, okay. And he had picked somebody out. And you remember who the first king of Israel was, right? Saul, a man named Saul. Listen to what the Bible says about Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. I think the New Living Translation as he was a wealthy man. There was a wealthy man of the tribe of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He's the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, who's the son of mm, that guy, and so on. Verse 2, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Choice and handsome. Choice. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> And folks, when the Bible calls you handsome, you're good looking. He had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Well, I like this detail. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. The Bible does not exaggerate. If the word of the living God says you're the best looking dude in the country, you are the best looking dude in the country. Not only that, he said, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is like every church girl's vision list right here. <laughs> he comes from money. He's good looking. Choice, whatever that means. <laughs> Some of these girls are like, yeah, I choose him. He's choice. And this goes on and talks about how, uh, verse 3, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were, were lost and... Uh, Saul, his, his dad, Kish, sent him out to go find the donkeys. Don't you hate it when that happens, Joel? You lose the donkeys. They just... Anyway, Saul gets sent out, go find the donkeys. And he's out for three days looking for these donkeys, and he can't find them. And he'd taken a servant with him, and he said, we better go home. Daddy's going to be worried about me. And his servant, his little servant guy said, wait, somewhere around here lives the prophet, the seer. He's talking about Samuel. And if we can find him, he'll tell us where the donkeys are. So I was like, okay, let's go find him. And uh, they're walking down the road, come across a group, the Bible says, of, of young women. Imagine that was a very awkward situation. It's Saul, it's Saul. He talked to me. No, he talked to me. And they said, do you know where the seer is? And these young girls said, he's... 
He's right there. He's just up the road. So, so they go running off and they find Samuel. And later in this same chapter, verse 15, it says, The Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You'll anoint him commander over my people. So when Samuel saw saw Saul, the Lord said, this is him. And so uh, he gets into a conversation. Oh, verse 19, Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys, see Saul hadn't even brought up the donkeys yet. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they've been found. And then he adds this. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? Saul's probably going, I'm just looking for some donkeys. I, I, I don't know what's going on. What was Israel's desire? king and Samuel looks at him and says on who is all the desire of Israel is it not on you and your father's house now remember what the Bible already told us about Saul tall handsome money choice listen to his response verse 21 Saul answered and said am I not a Benjamite now listen to these words, of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, why then do you speak to me like this? It's amazing the people you would assume have it all together, that you would assume would have every reason to be confident. But the moment, the moment he was brought face to face and eye to eye with the call, all that natural stuff, the good looks, the money, all of it fell short. And in his response to the magnitude of the assignment, you get a window into his own soul. And you can hear the words he used to describe himself. The smallest. The least. Why do you speak to me like this? One translation says, why do you talk to me like I'm somebody important? This impossibility in his eyes exposed some pretty serious insecurity. Which is really just another name for fear. That's what it is. It's fear. And it's not a feeling of fear. It is a spirit of fear. And man, this coming eye to eye with this, this calling, you get a real glimpse into who he saw himself and how he saw himself. Small, the least, unimportant. But in chapter 10, I want you to notice what happened. Verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So this outward 
anointing of oil is a representation of the calling and the assignment on his life and the equipping to do what God called him to do. And that's what this anointing to these people in this time represented. It was a separation to an office, but it wasn't just the separation to the office. It was the equipping and the tools that it took to accomplish the job. And over the next several verses, Samuel began to explain to Saul, here's what's about to happen. Here's what's about to change because of this moment, because of the anointing. He gets down into verse 6. Well, back up. Hmm. Verse 3. You'll go forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There are three men going up to God at Bethel. We'll meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They'll greet you and give, give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp. So basically this traveling band coming down from the mountain, rocking out. And he said, they will be prophesying. Now notice this, verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. What did Jesus say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. So Samuel's communicating to Saul, here's what's about to happen to you because of this moment right here. The Spirit of the Lord is coming on you. He's anointing you and you will prophesy with them. Now think about that. What do you already know about Saul? What do you know about his confidence? What do you know where his security lies? This is not a confident person we're talking about. I better go home. Daddy might be looking for me. This is not a courageous, confident in himself person. And you would think, good looking guy like you, you got every reason to be. Don't make that assumption about people. And Samuel's saying, here's what's going to happen. You, this shy, insecure person, are going to prophesy. I mean, what if, I, what if I asked somebody in this room tonight, who would raise a hand and say, you're probably the most shy person in this room? We probably couldn't even get you to raise a hand and, and do that. But I guarantee you, in a room this size with this many people, there are people in here who wrestle with these feelings of insecurity and these, you know, don't like to be in front of people. And what if I were to pull you out of the crowd, stick a microphone in your face and say, prophesy, we're listening. <laughs> but notice this. He said, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. That's the anointing. That's the anointing right there. That's what the anointing is. That's what the anointing does. It comes on you to turn you into another person. You see this played out in Scripture. Do you remember a guy named Samson? Big guy, right? Strong, physically strong. I challenge you to go through the entire account of Samson's life. It's something like five or six chapters in the book of Judges. And there is not one reference that I can find that leads you or me or anybody else to believe that he had any kind of unusual 
physical stature. Children's church has painted a picture for us of a really big guy. But here's what the Bible does say about him. Like five different times, the Spirit of the Lord came on him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily on him. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. Well, what's the Spirit of the Lord come on you to do? To turn you into somebody else. So in my mind, Samson looks a lot more like me. Just go with it. Would you please just, just, just roll with it? And, and what a testimony that would be, right? It's one thing if a big, strong, six foot six, 280-pound guy with, you know, 1% body fat is able to beat down a whole army. It's another thing if, you know, 155 soaking wet is able to do anything, really. But what a, what a miracle it is. I'll say to you like this, how much does that prove the existence of God? To see somebody who comes to the end of their own physical strength quickly, but supernatural strength comes on him, turns him into somebody else. And this bears out to be true because Delilah, man, this guy, just did not have good judgment when it came to the ladies. He, the first words out of his mouth in scripture are, Dad, I found a woman. Get her for me. He, he gets married to this girl. He gets in a fight with a bunch of the people at her, in her wedding party. Uh, you can read it for yourself. He calls his wife a cow, a heifer. He, see, he gave the guys a riddle and said, if you can't solve it, then you got to pay me. And then they went to her behind his back, because these are her people, and said, if you don't find out what the answer is, we're going to burn you and your father's house down. It's a weird time that they lived in. <laughs> it's just like that escalated quickly, you know. It's just, it's a joke. It's a joke. I got a riddle. It's just relax, you know. And so she tells them the answer. And they come and tell him the answer. And he said, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, just not got away with the ladies, I'm telling you. So he, I think, kills all those guys, which I think gets a marriage off to a bad start. When you kill your wife's wedding party, it just things don't go well. And so she goes home with her dad. And Samson starts feeling bad about it. So he comes to her house with a goat. Again, just, I don't think he understands ladies. I'm not claiming I know everything, but where does it say in the book of love that a goat is the way to a woman's heart? And he comes bearing a goat. And the dad says, oh, wow, I really thought you didn't want her. I gave her to your best man. That makes him mad. He burns stuff down again. I mean, he's just got bad judgment when it comes to this stuff. But even with Delilah, she has to try to trick him. But what's her question? What's the source of your strength? That's the question. So if it was physical, she wouldn't have to be asking this. You could see it. There it is. But it wasn't, was it? 
what's the source of your strength? And he told her what it was. There's a lesson in here. And that is this, that the anointing of God on your life is one of the most precious possessions you have. And it is worthy to be protected at all costs. And he didn't protect it. He failed to protect it. And it was stolen from him. Saul, who we're reading about, you know he lost the anointing. He lost it through pride. Samson lost it through pride. There's an account in Samson's life when he looked around at the thousand guys he just killed with his own hands and said, I have done this. Pride loses the anointing. David, you know, was anointed by God. When you talk about the anointing turning you into somebody else. He's a shepherd boy turned into a stone-cold killer, literally, <laughs> by the anointing. Now, David made some mistakes, didn't he? Man, he messed it up, did some serious things. But he protected the anointing through humility, quick to repent, quick to change. If you read what it says about Saul here in 1 Samuel 10, says, you'll be turned into another man. Samuel said to him in verse 7, Let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands. Why? For God is with you. God is what? Oh, come on. Were you here like 20 minutes ago? What, 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 did, we, what did we read? This is what takes it out of the realm of impossible. It puts it into the realm of it can be done. In verse 9, so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. This is more of the equipment that it takes, the equipment for what comes next, a heart for it. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. And the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it happened, verse 11, when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Yeah. Do you notice that? All who knew him formerly? Formerly, what's that mean? Like before, before this moment, like yesterday and beyond, before the moment when he was anointed. All who knew him formerly, they said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? In other words, people who knew him before he was anointed looked at him and said, What got into you? Anybody ready for some of that? Yeah. I am ready for some of that in my own life. For people to visibly, tangibly see the effect of the anointing. You know, they say about Smith Wigglesworth, a man who was born in England in the 1800s, 1867, I believe it was. And at six years old, left school, went to work in factories, had no education whatsoever, grew up rough, unable to read, unable to write, had a real encounter with God. It changed his life. God called him into the ministry. 
but even years into the ministry, still an uneducated man. And there are people that were eyewitnesses of his ministry, both there in England and in other places around the world, that would say of him, there was one man I'm thinking of right now, Brother Hagin talked about this, this one man who was over part of the Assemblies of God denomination. He said yearly they would bring Smith Wigglesworth in. And he wasn't even a part of their denomination. But they would bring him into their general conference because they wanted their young people to watch what happened. Because Smith, they said, would take the platform. And for the first little bit, he'd begin talking. And people would say it was just awkward. It was uncomfortable. Because he really couldn't put one sentence after another. You could tell he wasn't educated. It didn't really make sense. It wasn't coherent. But then something would happen. And this man talking about it, the Brother Hagen interviewed about it, he said the anointing would come on him. And this is literally what the man said. People would nearly be startled in the crowd because it seemed all of a sudden like he was turned into another person. That's what they said about him. You know why it seemed like that? Because it was like that. That's exactly what happened. And they would bring him and put him in front of these young men, these young ministers, and say, watch this. Watch what the anointing does. And to just sit there and to watch somebody change in front of your very eyes. Folks, there are some people who knew you formerly. There are some folks that knew you and know you before you come into this encounter with the anointing. And I'm telling you, the anointing is the equipping for what comes next. It's the enabling. It's the ability. Ask Samson. It's what strengthens you. It's your source of confidence. It's your source of boldness. And if you will do what 1 John 2 said, abide in it. Stay in it. Don't let anything steal it from you. Don't lose it through pride. Don't lose it through fleshy stuff. Stay and abide in the anointing. There will be those who knew you formerly and look at you and say, what has gotten into you? And if you're wise, you know what you'll say? The anointing. The anointing. It's Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The anointing will turn you in to another person. I'll give you another really good, deeply rooted, biblical example of this. Popeye the sailor man. You remember him, right? Every episode was exactly the same. He's got this girl, right? What's her name? Oh. Type of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Not really. But in every episode, here comes, who is it? Brutus. He comes along. He's also in love with olive oil. So he does what you do when you're in love with somebody. Kidnaps her, ties her up with ropes, puts her on a train track. What message were we sending? to the young kids of the 1930s and 40s. And in every episode, in every comic strip, Popeye, he starts trying to fight Brutus, right? But every time, this big, towering, huge opponent just pummels him and drives him into the ground, and it looks like it's lights out for Popeye every time until 
He reaches into his pants pocket, those sailor pants, pulls out his spinach, as you do, and he somehow manages to get that spinach in his system, right? And every time, what do you watch happen? It goes coursing through that body, and it strengthens him, and now these muscles... And all of a sudden, and he starts coming back and just starts laying in to Brutus and laying him down and laying him out. And now he's victorious. Oh, wow. This is more spiritual than you know. Because when you come in contact with the anointing and you get that in this system, there is strength coming into you. Strength that's well beyond your own physical strength, that's well beyond your own mental strength, that is far beyond your own financial strength. You want to know how Paul said it? I can do all things through the anointing that strengthens me. The anointing is a strengthener. And you're going to need this strength for whatever comes next. I don't know what it is for you. I'm starting to get a glimpse of what it is for me. And I've been asking the Lord for a number of years now, what's coming? What's coming? Am I that? And as I look and I, I study the offices of ministry and the, the gifts that God gave unto men and some He gave prophets, apostles, pastors, teachers, and so on. I look at those and say, well, am I that? Am I that? What do you called me to stand in? What's the anointing you put on my life? What do you anointed me to do? And I've been asking the Lord that, and I've noticed that over the last year or so, up until recently, it was almost, um, I don't want to say panicked, but there was a little bit of frustration in it. Like, am I really that? And after preaching this for a few months, I realized, oh, I've been talking to myself. And I came to the realization, chill out, Jeremy, because whatever he's called you to do, the anointing to do that will turn you into that. Folks, whatever He's called you to do, whatever it is He's anointed you to do, rest. Draw your strength. Draw your confidence in knowing this. That anointing will turn you into that. It'll turn you into that. But this is, this is important. I'll say this and be done. Notice what Samuel said to Paul. Or to, to Saul. He said, this is what's going to happen. The band's coming down the mountain. They're going to prophesy. The Spirit of the Lord's coming on you. You're going to prophesy. But then he said this. See that you do all that the occasion demands of you. So what that says to me is, here's the equipment to do it. Here's the anointing. Here's God with you to do it. And yet you still have a part to play. You and I still have to do what the occasion demands of us. And here's what's so cool. When you find out what it is He's called you and anointed you to do, and you come to grips with that, and you stare at it eye to eye, and you don't shrink back from it in shame, but you're confident knowing it's Christ in me, then as you walk and you live in this life, you are going to start realizing that every day you're stepping into occasions that demand the anointing that's on you. And it's like 
you're stepping into things you never saw before. And you're thinking, I'm supposed to be here right now. And somebody's talking to you who maybe has talked to you countless times before. And they're telling you what they're going through and telling you the hell that they're living at home. And all of a sudden, because you recognize, I'm anointed. I've got the equipment. This occasion is putting a demand on this anointing. Now, instead of just, you know, spouting off whatever came to your head, now you're drawing it up out of this well on the inside. You've got the equipment to remove a burden and destroy a yoke. This is what he needs. God needs people who will do what the occasion demands. Not just from behind a pulpit, but do what the occasion demands in the line at the grocery store. Do what the occasion demands at your relative's house. Do what the occasion demands on the job, at work, at home. Step into the occasion and do what the occasion demands of you. Yield to the anointing. It's like somebody in a restaurant choking or having a heart attack or something and all of a sudden people rush around him and say, is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor? Is there a doctor? Is there a doctor? Wouldn't you think poorly of somebody if you found out that there was a doctor sitting there who was fully qualified, equipped, and able to address the situation and save the life? But because it wasn't on the clock, How poorly, how little would you think of somebody that said, well, I am a doctor, but if I could get you to make an appointment with my office, I have office hours Monday, Wednesday, Friday, while this guy lays there dying. No, you're in an occasion that demands what you've got. Folks, this is what the world's crying out around us. They may not be saying it in these words, but as they're sitting there telling you their life and what's going on and where they're hurting, you want to know what they're saying? Is there some faith in the house? Is there some love in the house? Is there some belief in the house? Is there some healing in the house? Is there some anointing in the house? They may not know to say it in those words, but that is an occasion that's trying to place a demand on the anointing that's on you. And if you shut that up, that's how you quench the Spirit. You quench the Spirit by just not yielding. Give yourself to it. Give yourself to it. Find out what the anointing is and then give yourself to it with everything you've got. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we worship you. Father, we worship you. Lord, I pray tonight over your people. We are so thankful for the anointing, the anointing of Jesus that removes burdens and destroys yokes. Jesus, thank you for sharing that anointing with us. I ask you, Lord, to reveal to me, to every one of us, show us what the anointing is, what the the equipment and the equipping is for what comes next. I know you're faithful to do that, Lord. We make the commitment to you tonight that we will yield to the anointing and let the anointing do its work in us, strengthen us, enable us. And if you have to, Lord, turn us into somebody else. Like a, like a superhero with a concealed identity. 
I thank you, Father, for working what's inside of us to the outside. I declare over these people in here tonight and those watching online that you are about to step into occasions and opportunities that demand the anointing of God on you. And if you'll step into it with open eyes, God will use you to remove a burden and destroy a yoke in somebody's life. And that person will not be, will not leave just impressed with you or with a gift, but they'll leave blessed by the anointing, changed by the power and the love of God. I think every one of us ought to tonight just say out loud Isaiah's, pray, Isaiah's prayer. Just say it like this. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. I'm available to you. I yield myself to you. I will quench not the Spirit of God. I yield to the Spirit. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Well, I kept you a long time. Did you get anything out of this tonight? The Lord help you.